live from the Finley Toyota ESPN Las Vegas studios. I hate these guys. I don't know why you don't, and I'll be in the car. This is the Press Box. Makeup stuff. Tyler Bischoff. That player is known as the Scrabble Jackass and is then handed the box top for any further rule clarifications. Adam Candy. I can't hate him. He is so transparent in his self-interest that I kind of respect him. Would I buy a car from him? No. On ESPN Las Vegas. Ed Graney is out today. Filling in is Adam Candy and the Woo! Golden Knights. Oh, they finally beat the Minnesota Wild. The first bite. Does Vegas's game two convince you they'll win the series? It was a must-win game, Adam, and they won. Yay for musts. <laughs> you literally yesterday said it wasn't a must-win. I know I the said that. The aces were the only must-win. The aces win. were in a must-win situation yesterday. The Golden Knights were not. Um, so... Saving the season might be a little dramatic, but yeah, you go down 2 nothing to Minnesota, having to win then two games in Minnesota as opposed to just one, yeah, maybe it's not too dramatic there. But uh, Adam, I think my my main question from this is like, we, we watch hockey games and it's the least predictable sport as far as like trying to find good analytics to predict future success, but expected goals and course, he generally do a good job of that. But in both of these games, the team that has dominated the first period, has not scored in the first period and then has gone on to lose the game. And given the last 15 or so Golden Knights playoff games, uh, me, the person that loves numbers, is starting more and more to think I don't need to pay as much attention to these in the playoffs because it doesn't matter. The Golden Knights games are just going to be ridiculous and it's irrelevant if you play well to actually winning the game. I think the one piece you have to add in there to make it work in that formula is the goaltending because... In the end, you can do everything right and yet still have a goaltender playing at a level like Marc-Andre Fleury or like Cam Talbot in game one, and your best laid plans go to waste because the one thing that the analytics really can't measure is that, right? You can say, okay, Corsi 4 provides opportunities for chances. It provides for uh, for shot blocks, et cetera, et cetera. But in the end... You can do everything you're supposed to do. You can create all the high danger chances in the world. And when you have Marc-Andre Fleury, who through two games has faced 19 high danger chances and stopped 18 of them, then the analytics really don't matter as much as the Golden Knights, uh, unfortunately, found out against the Stars last year. <laughs> and, you know, right now, Marc-Andre Fleury is the reason that the analytics haven't mattered. Okay, so let me ask you this. Uh, Phrasing-wise... Are they going to need Marc-Andre Fleury to carry them through the playoffs? Like, are they going to need these performances? Or, or do you think they'll actually start scoring goals like they did in the regular season? I don't think they're going to score goals in this series. I don't think it's going to be all that uh, all that much of an explosion after what you saw last night, which is realistically two goals before Minnesota takes a bad penalty at the end of the game and puts itself in a penalty kill situation. So... What do the Minnesota Wild do better than everybody else? Why are they so frustrating for the Golden Knights, they don't make mistakes. They make all of the simplest plays to keep the puck out of danger. They don't allow the puck into the middle of the ice. If you look at the heat map right now for where the Golden Knights shots are coming from, they're basically all coming from 
along the goal line. Like they're just taking shots at Cam Talbot from horrible angles and hoping to get a rebound and maybe they crash the net and something happens or it's coming off a rush where they've been forced to the outside and they're not really getting a great look because in the end, Tyler, the Golden Knights played five really good minutes last night. They played 20 decent minutes and they played 35 pretty bad minutes and they just happened to score the two goals during that time of the five minutes and win the game. Yeah, I'm not expecting the offense to suddenly pick it up or be... I mean, they were one of the best offensive teams in the regular season. I'm not expecting that to happen in this series. And so you look at Marc-Andre Fleury, and it's it's almost unbelievable how good he has been. Like, he is 36 years old and just had his career-best regular season by save percentage and goal saved above average if you adjust it on a per-game basis. Like... He his best season at 36 is unbelievable, and now in the playoffs, he's been even better. I mean, he's over three goals saved above average through two playoff games. His save percentage is up at uh, 969 through two playoff games. So it's it's almost unbelievable how good Mark Andre Fleury has been at 36 years old. You don't normally see somebody who's played as long as Fleury has, and then oh, they're 36, and that's their career best season. So my main question for Marc-Andre Fleury and this series, and if they continue and manage to get into another series, what does regression look like for him? Because he's not going to stay this good for the entirety of the playoffs. And in the in the regular season, we saw some regression. The first eight or nine games, his save percentage was sort of, it was 9-5, 9-6, sort of where it is now in the playoffs. And he regressed, but he only regressed to where his save percentage ended up being 9-2-8 at the end of the regular season. Like, he didn't regress much during the regular season. And if that happens again, like if his regression is, we're talking about, oh, he's saving, you know, it's 9-3 is a save percent or something like that, then I think the Golden Knights have a legitimate chance. But if his regression is a little uglier, if his regression is, I mean, a little more normal, at least what you'd expect, and it falls down, and it's like he's got a couple games where his save percentage is under 900, and he's around a 9-10 save percentage, that's where I think the Golden Knights get eliminated, even with Flurry having played so well through two games. So... Let's go ahead and the two of us together send this message directly to Alan Walsh. Um, <laughs> oh, I like the, he blocked me though. Hold on, am I the right person for this? I don't yes. know if I'm the right yeah, messenger. Like, yes, we're doing it right now. Send, it's together. You and I are you and I are getting one of those like to the mom from you know the son and daughter in law cards, right? Okay, like, that's it's good. like one of those where we sign it together. Uh, Alan Walsh, I need you to know something. Pete DeBoer saved Mark Andre Fleury's career. Because Pete DeBoer took a 36-year-old Marc-Andre Fleury, stuck him into a hard goalie rotation with Robin Leonard, didn't run him down during the regular season, and allowed Marc-Andre Fleury to be exactly who he is right now. Because he has been the difference for the Golden Knights, and the biggest thing you can point to is to say that Marc-Andre Fleury has not had to shoulder the same workload outside of the three weeks or so when Robin Leonard was out. Pete DeBoer stuck to a hard goalie rotation for 25 consecutive games, gave Marc-Andre Fleury rest come the playoffs, and then decided, okay, now I'm going to ride the guy who has played the better of my two goaltenders. And so Alan Walsh probably needs to go ahead and take that sword right out of Marc-Andre Fleury's back because he has been the savior, has Pete DeBoer, of Marc-Andre Fleury come the playoffs. And even if you say regression is around the corner, which it could be, Tyler, we're... We're the, we're the stats guys, right? Regression doesn't come around in this small a sample size. 
right? It, it took the entirety of the season for Marc-Andre Fleury to hit some level of regression. If you're saying, can he put together a 14, 15 game stretch where he carries the Golden Knights? He absolutely can. And he's playing at that level right now. I, I'm I'm glad you said 14, 15 game stretch when they need 16 to win the Stanley Cup. <laughs> well, I'm saying I'm saying quite obviously he can't win every game for them. Yeah, why not? Sure he can. Um I Adam, I think that might be the best take you've ever had on this show that Pete DeBoer has saved Marc Andre Fleury. I, I think it's Thank I think you. it's the best you've ever had. Uh and I do I do enjoy that the coach whose name was on a sword through Marc Andre Fleury's back. Uh, is the, his coach when he has his best career season at age 36. Like how well, much credit Pete DeBoer actually deserves for him being better, I don't have any idea, but it happened under Pete DeBoer. It didn't happen under Gerard Gallant. It didn't happen when he was in Pittsburgh. It happened under Pete DeBoer. It absolutely happened under Pete DeBoer, and much like DeBoer saved Marc-Andre Fleury's career with rest, I haven't been on with you guys for months, and so you let <laughs> me rest up like that. Bring me back once every few months, and you'll get a great take like you just got. Okay. Okay, so <laughs> let me ask you this. What should Pete DeBoer do with his fourth line? They had Tomas Nosek get hurt last night. That meant Ryan Reeves and Will Carrier were just sort of a, a two-man line that they found minutes for anyways. Ryan Reeves, though, was pretty horrific. Like, his course, he was 33%. His expected goals was 17%. Like, he had no impact on the game. Every time he was out there, it seemed like Minnesota was getting high-danger chances. What are you doing with the fourth line if you're Pete DeBoer? So if you have lived in Las Vegas long enough, you watch the Dunes and you watch the Desert Inn and the Sands and every other casino that has been imploded from the inside out. And that is exactly what needs to happen with this fourth line. Look, it, Ryan Reeves came back from long-term injured reserve and immediately that fourth line became awful. Not that it was you know, world-beating prior, but... I know they love to point to the hits. They love to point to Reeves and Carrier together. Look, that team last night had two good lines, the second line and the third line, because obviously the first goal came from Marcia, so might end up being the goal that saves them in this uh, series. The third line, I thought, actually generated pretty consistent pressure and made really good plays. But that fourth line was abominable, and it was terrible even But when Tom, Tomasz Nosek was on the ice. And so if you're going to do something with the fourth line, you're going to look for some offense. I know that the, real, the reality is they're not going to sit down Ryan Reeves, but they, they should be sitting down Ryan Reeves. It, it, like Quite clearly, if you say, okay, what is the difference in this fourth line between what was going on at the end of the regular season and now, the difference is reintroducing a guy who has absolutely zero impact in the offensive zone. None. Absolutely none. And so you can talk about switching up that fourth line. And the other thing you have to say is that what has the first line really been? Right, Chandler Stevenson on the rush has done a pretty good job of getting out on his own and generating some opportunities. Obviously, Alex Tuck had the key goal last night. He actually had the key goal thanks to Alex Petrangelo and Matthias Yanmark. So it wasn't actually his line that was doing it. Mark Stone's been pretty damn quiet in this series with Max Pacioretty out. So I think it's the fourth line that needs help. I think the first line probably needs a look as well. Yeah, the first line is going to be the bigger problem if this continues like the good thing about the first line is they haven't been a train wreck defensively like it's not like they're out there giving up a ton of chances but the expectation of that line is that they're going to be good defensively 
and they're going to provide the majority, a lot of the scoring for the Golden Knights throughout playoff series. So that's the problem. I'll say one other thing on Ryan Reeves, because I don't think they're taking him out of the lineup either. But one thing Pete DeBoer can do, well, actually, it's going to be harder now that he's going to Minnesota and doesn't have last change. But Ryan Reeves played over five minutes against Joel Eriksson and Minnesota's top line last night. I, I cannot comprehend why. I have no idea why Ryan Reeves would play over half of his minutes and more minutes than any other forward for the Golden Knights against Minnesota's top line. I, I do not comprehend what Pete DeBoer is doing there. There's zero reason that Ryan Reeves should be on the ice for more than 60 seconds against Minnesota's top line. And for some reason, it was over five minutes. That I don't get. And if you're going to keep him in the lineup, you're going to have to live with that. But there's zero reason you've got to put him out there against the other team's top two lines. If the Golden Knights do not win both games in Minnesota, if this becomes a best of three series, give me a level of confidence. You know, give me a use the Corsi scale. Give me a level of confidence of the Golden Knights being able to win a three game series against the Wild. Well, I feel like you're being generous, giving them at least one in Minnesota. If it's two two coming back with uh, two in Vegas, I'd say they're sixty three percent chance to win the series. Sixty, very scientific. I appreciate that. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I I see where you're coming from. I think it's probably closer to. 55, 56. I, I think this is a coin flip series has been right from the very beginning. I bet the wild at plus 210 uh, before the series because that seemed to be just an absolutely absurd line for what's gone on between these teams this year. I saw the Golden Knights as high as minus 250 to win this series. Does anyone behind the counter at the sports books <laughs> take a look at the fact that they won one regulation game against the wild this year? They have been horribly frustrated by this team. That being said, Marc-Andre Fleury playing at this level might make it so it doesn't matter. Wait a minute. They got so scarred by that first season where they almost lost all of their money on Golden Knights bets that they are they can never make them an underdog again. It's illegal to make the Golden Knights an underdog at a sportsbook in Las Vegas. Not allowed anymore. All right, coming up next, we're going to get into the athletics. They're coming to Vegas. They're taking a tour. But they're leaving out Deborah Marsh and Henderson? Is Tyler a know-it-all? Can you prove him wrong? Call the Press Box voicemail and let us know. 702-720-4678. And he drives this one. Right field. And that is pay dirt! Right field home run for Kyle Tucker. The 10th home run of the season for Kyle. And the Astros lead 3-1. to one. The Astros ended up losing to the Las Vegas A's last night, 6-5. to five. Uh, But Review Journals reported that the Athletics, their president, Dave Cavall, is going to come and take a tour of Las Vegas. But the newest story is that the A's are not going to be meeting with Deborah Marsh, the mayor of Henderson. This is despite the city of Henderson a couple of years ago uh, trying to plan in secret with the Diamondbacks to build a billion-dollar stadium for them to move up here, and despite the fact that Henderson has given uh, tens of millions of dollars to the AHL team and to the Raiders for their practice facility over the past few years. Uh, before we get to the Henderson side of stuff, Adam, I'm, I'm just curious on your general thoughts on the A's and their threat of relocation do you think we're just leverage, or do you think this is serious at the moment? You know, history says we're leverage, but of course the Raiders went and blew up some of that history by coming here when I thought there was no chance 
that was going to happen either. But I also do not believe that there is another $750 million in tax money <laughs> oh, sitting in we'll, someone's pocket. We'll find it. It might be in the couch cushions somewhere in some old furniture from the palace station, but I don't think so. So I don't think the A's are really coming here. And I think the biggest thing is that look at the fact that we have the reporting that showed from Alex Coffey that this opportunity for the A's to say, well, we're going to have to look elsewhere. Well, and really for Major League Baseball to say the A's are going to have to look elsewhere. This opportunity has been out there. Rob Manford extended this, uh, let's just say, leverage play to the A's a long time ago and said, anytime you want me to come in and use this threat, I'll be happy to. So here we are now with the A's coming down here. I think more than realistically using this as some leverage to get a better deal in Oakland. If we're if we're finding seven hundred and fifty million dollars for the A's, like, do you even have a place to start? Like, where we would get that from? Just another tax on hotel visitors? Yeah, that seems like a, less than a sound idea, considering what happened to the room tax <laughs> during the pandemic. Like, had the pandemic extended any longer than it did? Look at what was happening to the room tax collections. They were already dipping deep into the bond fund in order to make the payments on the stadium. And otherwise, that comes out of the county's coffers. That comes out of other taxpayer money if people who are coming to Las Vegas and staying in rooms aren't doing so enough to pay for it. So no, I mean, that's not going to happen, especially because when you look at what it's going to take for a baseball stadium, it's not even the same as Allegiant where it can be a multi-purpose stadium. It's not 65,000 seats where you can have a bowl game or the Final Four or some other huge event. It is a single-use stadium when you build something for baseball in 2021. So are you surprised at all that the A's are not meeting with Henderson given how much Henderson has given to, you know, essentially minor league sports in recent years and that Henderson was trying to plan with the Diamondbacks to come here? No, not at all, because Henderson has been playing in A-ball. Like, this is not major league stuff that they've been doing. Henderson gave, if I believe, $40 million for the new facility that's being 42? Bill Stone's throw from my house. 42? 42, thank you. Uh, nothing but accuracy here on the press box. <laughs> uh, $42 million for the AHL arena. I'm sorry, the Dollar Loan Center. and The Dollar Loan Center Center. So the, the Center Center, yes. Uh, center Center, kind of like, uh, you know, kind of like uh, the Golden Knights might have, a Center Center. So what we have here for <laughs> Henderson is... It's that was a really bad joke. Uh, <laughs> Henderson is playing in A-ball, right? They build this facility for the Silver Knights. And what did they do for the Raiders? They essentially cut the value of land in half, sold it to them for 50%, but it was something in the range of $6 million that they cut a break on. A total of $48 million ain't getting it done when it comes to bringing a Major League Baseball team here. And the city of Henderson doesn't have nearly the taxation power to raise the kind of money it's going to take to get a Major League Stadium done. Yeah, that's what I've kind of thought about Henderson is that they're not going to be able to come up with that kind of money if the A's are looking for because they want the, what is it, $850 million from Oakland and in infrastructure upgrades for their would-be site of a new stadium. I've kind of felt Henderson wouldn't have that much money. But I, to be honest, I would have thought Henderson wouldn't give up $42 million for an AHL arena. Plus, it was uh, $10.75 million for what's now the AHL's practice facility. I wouldn't have thought they had $50-plus million to throw around for that. 
but they found a way to do that anyways. I don't know if that's actually working, but they found a way to do it. So yeah, yeah, it, that's that's part of it. I think you also have to consider for Henderson the site that they chose to do that with was a site that essentially had been wrecked. It lost its roof. There was a giant windstorm that blew the top off the Henderson Pavilion. They figured out it was going to be next to impossible to replace that roof for any sort of reasonable cost. Plus, that pavilion never really turned into what they wanted it to be in terms of a concert venue or bringing in shows of any other sort. And so they had to do something with that site. Did they have to build a $42 million center center? No, not necessarily. But they did have to do something with that site. They also took the old Civic Center downtown on water street and put the money into that when that also was a building where i believe the most remarkable thing i had ever seen inside that facility was the henderson symphony orchestra playing inside a convention center <laughs> well now you get to watch the indoor football league's las vegas red knights in the future oh, so oh god more nights yeah. good we, we, it's going to be medieval times all over town oh I, my god they're not the red knights right like you're just making a joke Yes, I'm making a joke, but like the end zones were red in their renderings, and it's Bill Foley. So, oh god, that's such a bad name. Like, it's, there's a chance it's Red Knights. What um, about what, can we call them the Red Weddings? Uh, I do, Bill Foley needs you think more. Tyler got that reference. I'm watching Game of Thrones right now. Oh, I've seen right, it. All right, I'm in like season five or something. I've seen the Red Wedding. Um, I guess technically there were knights in the Red Wedding, so. I don't think Bill Foley's going to go for that one, though. I mean, hell, he couldn't get Golden Knights past the parachute team. Is he going to get Red Wedding past Game of Thrones trademarks? <laughs> Someone get in, in touch with George Martin right, right now. Right. I don't think that's happening. Um, the last thing on this, because I'm I'm curious to see, because because we got the Raiders, we've seen it eh, from the outside looking in, the way Oakland handles public money for pro sports teams. And it, it, it doesn't happen is basically the way they handle it. So I am fascinated, like, I believe this is a leverage play from Oakland. I don't believe they want to move, and I don't believe they're going to seriously consider it unless somebody does plop down like an $8 million or $800 million check. But I also I, I don't know that they're getting $850 million from Oakland like in those infrastructure costs they want. Like I don't know the end game that they're actually going to get it from Oakland. I agree with you. I, I, Oakland has made it clear. The mayor up there, Libby Schaff, has been very clear about how she feels about these things. The Raiders are proof of that. But man, the uh, the Raiders had a little different history than the A's. The Raiders had moved and moved, and the A's decided after the Raiders moved, after the Warriors announced their intent to go across the bay, the A's doubled down, and the hashtag around the Coliseum is rooted in <laughs> Oakland. If they decide to blow that up, I cannot imagine the sort of hit that this franchise is going to take now if someone's going to give them 850 million dollars they'll probably take that hit and plaster it right over but right now i struggle to see how this particular market is going to come up with any sort of public money to go toward this franchise i just don't see that then again i couldn't see the combination of forces that led to bringing <laughs> the raiders here with sheldon adelson leaning on the legislature and getting that done all right, coming up next, we talk to the number one Minnesota Wild fan, Dom Lushinson. Here's Marcheseau, scores! Up the right post and in! Jonathan Marcheseau answers right back, set up by Smith on the right wing. Marcheseau rips it home from the right circle. And the first goal of the night's 2021 postseason goes to Jonathan Marcheseau. We got 
Joining us now from The Athletic is Dom Lushinson. Uh And Dom, I'm I'm curious, can you explain to us how you became the number one Minnesota Wild fan? <laughs> uh, well, at the start of the year, um, I had a pretty big bet on them, and I tweeted that no amount of money could make me watch a Minnesota Wild versus Los Angeles Kings game. <laughs> and it turned out to be a really excited game, and the Wild account said a lot of you guys owe us apologies so i tweeted that at them saying i'm sorry and thanks for winning all that and it turned into this little thing where i would tweet at the wild account they'd tweet at me and then i said if i ended up having the same bet like two days later and i said if you guys win i'm gonna become this big wild fan follow you back and they kept winning, and I kept having these big edges on their games, and they have been a money-printing factory for me. So how can I not be the number one Minnesota Wild fan under those circumstances? <laughs> so you became a Minnesota Wild fan because the West Division was so bad this year, basically. Basically, yeah. <laughs> um, so what do you have like a good explanation as to why really over the course of four seasons, but mainly this year, the Minnesota Wild are really good against the Golden Knights when really nobody else has been as good as they've been against this Vegas team. It is extremely strange to me because I'm not sure what makes it happen. I look at the Wild roster, and it's good. They belong in the playoffs. They're a strong team, but on paper, the Golden Knights are obviously much better, and yet through this series... You can probably only point to the first period of Game 1 where Vegas has been the obviously better team. And you go back through the entire season series, and the Wild have not only won a majority of the games, they've also outplayed Vegas in a majority of those games as well. And I don't know if that's the Wild's depth, their strong defense, or sometimes just Cam Talbot holding them in. But for some reason, this team seems to have the Golden Knights number, and it's been an interesting first two games because of that. Dom, when we look at how the Wild play against the Golden Knights, the Wild, as you mentioned, with that strong defense, they don't seem to make many mistakes. They seem to take the simple way out of trouble often, and the Golden Knights game in so many ways is predicated on putting you under pressure and forcing you to to make mistakes. So what can the Golden Knights do to essentially to force the Wild to give them a little a little bit more in terms of opportunities? I it is a really tough question because if they knew what to do, they would have done it by now. <laughs> and it's been four four years or so with this, and they keep changing teams, and it keeps being the same issue. And this year was an even bigger one for them. And I think the Wild pose a real threat to them in this series. I. I'm not going to lie. I think I know Ryan Reeves is a, a fan favorite, but I'm not sure why he's in the lineup right now. I I think the Golden Knights could use someone a little better on the fourth line, and they, they've used other people while he was injured, and they had a lot of success with him. But right now, that line is one of the lines getting killed the most by scoring chances. And I think at this point of his career, I don't think Ryan Reeves is the asset he used to be, even if you even if you factor in his, I guess his intimidation and whatnot. Um, but I, I honestly, I'm I'm not sure. I'm not really a systems person, so I can't point to anything and say, yeah, 
Golden Knights need to do this, this, and this. But in terms of personnel, that's uh, the one change I would probably make. You are not alone on the why is Ryan Reeves playing uh, train, uh, but it's not because it's not only Ryan Reeves, you know, why is he playing, why is he in the lineup? Pete DeBoer, A, they start him in most periods, start the fourth line for most games, but they also tend to give that line a ton of offensive zone faceoffs. And for some reason last night, Ryan Reeves played nine minutes. Over five of them were against the Erickson Eck line. Golden Knights mm-hmm. had last change and still found a way to play him against Minnesota's top line. Like it's, it's bizarre the use that Ryan Reeves, not just that he's in the lineup, but the use that Pete DeBoer is putting with Ryan Reeves. Yeah, that is a weird one. I think maybe the idea is to keep the top line away from the Eric Sinek line because the Eric Sinek line has been really strong this year at controlling play. And if you have last change, maybe you want to avoid that to get your best offensive players some freedom. But, I mean, if I had Mark Stone, I, I wouldn't be too afraid of any matchup. <laughs> Don, when you look at what's happening throughout the rest of the NHL here through the first couple of games, uh, how much does the addition or re-addition of Stamkos and Kucherov mean to the Tampa Bay Lightning? Because it seems like you know, Florida got them into a wild kind of game in, in game one, and then the Lightning came out and did what they do in game two. And, and there, there aren't many holes if Vasilevsky is going to play at that level. Yeah, I think it's massive, especially if Kucherov is already doing what he's doing through the first two games, you'd think there'd be like some sort of rust, but he looks almost exactly the same as he did on in the final series of last year's playoffs. It's pretty crazy to see, but this year Florida had Tampa's number in the same way the Wild had the Golden Knights number. They were the better team in most of the games during the season series, but that was without Kucherov, and now we're seeing how big an effect that is, and with Stamkos back too, Hedman looking healthier. I, it looks like it will be tough, but I do think switching goalies from Bobrovsky to Dreger can help them out. And even though the team lost both games at home, they're not out of it yet. It's just going to be a a long road ahead. Dom, in your playoff probabilities, you have the Avalanche at thirty nine percent to win the Stanley Cup right now. Uh, I'm yeah. curious, uh, how nervous are you that they're that big of a favorite when we're still in the first round? It is insane to me. Um, <laughs> I've never had a team that high. I went back, I think, last year when we were all quarantined at home and had nothing to do. I'm like, I'm going to check back over the last decade, just have like a reference point. And usually the top teams are around 20 to 25%. Sometimes it's a year where you don't really know and the top team's at 15%. And this year it's the avalanche. And it's because of exactly what we saw in game one against St. Louis, where it just feels like they're an inevitability. They just outplay you for so long that eventually things just happen to fall into place for them. And they ended up taking 50 shots and winning rather easily, even though through one period or two period, it didn't look like it would be that easy. Um, it does make me a bit nervous, but at the end of the day, 39% isn't 100. It's not even 50. <laughs> and it's still more likely that another team wins, but it is just so difficult to put anyone on Colorado's level right now. Is the best plan for St. Louis or whoever faces the Avalanche to take repeated runs at Philip Grubauer until someone knocks him out and forces Devin Dubnik into a game. 
I mean, I'm not going to condone it, but <laughs> that would be the only weakness right now because Grubauer is a terrific goalie, but the drop-off from him to Jonas Johansson or Devin Dumek is pretty substantial. At the same time, I don't think even that can stop the avalanche against most teams based on the fact that they're still probably going to outshoot a team 40-20. to 20. I think, but isn't that what Ryan Reeves could do? That I think I feel like that's the one thing the Golden Knights could use Ryan Reeves for is to try to take out Philip Grubauer if they get that far. Not you know, it's it's as good as any other plan. I mean, I feel like a lot of league already kind of hates the Golden Knights because of how all their immediate success right at the gate. Like there was no suffering whatsoever. If they win a series based on Ryan Reeves doing that, I think they would be the ultimate heels in the league for the rest of the year. And honestly, I think that'd be kind of fun, but I don't know. Um, The Golden Knights are probably one of the few teams that do have a decent chance against the Avalanche, but their entire skill is possessing the puck, and Colorado is far superior in that uh, area. Uh, Dumb. Can you give us any sort of explanation or, or what you think about Marc-Andre Fleury having his best career season when he's 36 years old? I think the best explanation uh, relates to my favorite football team, which is the Green Bay Packers. And we saw Aaron Rodgers do something similar this year. He was sort of going downhill, and then Green Bay drafted a quarterback in the first round. And he ended up having this MVP season, I think spite and pettiness is an extremely powerful thing. And when you are the starting goalie and your team trades for another goalie, makes him the start in the playoffs and try to trade you in the off season, can't even give you away for a second round pick and cutting half your salary or whatever the deal was, it motivates you. And I think flurry is that type of goalie where he's obviously happy-go-lucky, but I think he's extremely competitive. It's what made him a first overall pick back in the day, and I think we're seeing the best version of himself this year as a result of that motivation, but it's also just goalies being goalies. Sometimes they're up, sometimes they're down, and you just have to be along for the ride. So when we look at the Max Pacioretty factor here for the Golden Knights, Dom, what, what is this meaning to the Golden Knights? Because the combination of him and Stone seems to make both players better, and Mark Stone, mm-hmm. at least offensively, has had a fairly quiet couple of games. Yeah, it's been a bit tough for him. He still had moments. I remember in the first game where he literally just skated through everyone, and it didn't, wouldn't matter if Pacioretty was with him or not, he was just going to do that because he's Mark Stone. But for me, uh, Pacioretty is like a 3% loss in their win probability, so it's not it's hockey, so you can still win without your top guys, but it's noticeable how much less effective the top line is without him, although, I mean, Alex Tuck got moved up there and he was pretty good last night. But I think as long as they do that, and there's two strong offensive players on the top line. Mark Stone should be fine, but you obviously still would prefer Max Pacioretty's in the lineup. Uh, and last one for you, Dom. I'm curious, because we got zero cross-division matchups this year, when we get to the Final Four, how confident are you in any of your probabilities that they'll actually be any good for these uh, the last four teams? Uh, definitely much less confident, for sure. Um, it is going to be extremely 
tough because we may have seen Colorado be this elite team, but how much is that from facing five terrible teams all year? Same with Toronto. They didn't have to face that many terrible teams with uh, Ottawa being a lot better down the stretch, but at the same time, I don't think they faced any good teams either because even Edmonton and Winnipeg are sort of look like average paper tiger teams. And I think it is helpful that my model uses more than this year and uses priors. So that helps inform how good the team should be, but it'll still be a bit of an issue because the biggest driving factor is the season where the teams didn't end up playing each other. Well, he is Dom Lucians and from the athletic Dom, we appreciate your time this morning. Thanks for having me. So, there is uh, the analytics. Uh, what, what's what's the right word? Guru. I hate do I, I hate the word guru. But the analytics guy for the athletic. I'm still Adam. I'm I'm amazed the Avalanche are at 39 percent to win the Stanley Cup. Like that number is bizarre to me that it's that high. Ryan Reeves straight down the middle <laughs> into the knees of Philip Grubauer. Period. <laughs> well, they can sit him for the rest of this series and then bring him out so he's healthy to do that for the start of the Colorado series. Is there an analytic for intimidation that Ryan Reeves causes? No, because if there was, then Ryan Reeves might actually be worth keeping on the ice. But no, it doesn't exist. All right, coming up next, Adam and I are going to argue because uh, he hates the best rule Major League Baseball has ever implemented. Is Tyler a know-it-all? Can you prove him wrong? Tweet at Bischoff underscore Tyler and at Ed Graney. Turnbull sets the 0-2 pitch. Swing and a miss! History! Spencer Turnbull has become the sixth Tiger pitcher to throw the eighth no-hitter in franchise history. His teammates burst out of the dugout and mob him at the mound. How about it? We'll get more into the Mariners getting no-hit Again, in the front page at 8 o'clock. But first, more importantly, Major League Baseball last year implemented the uh, new extra innings rule where each team starts every extra inning with a runner on second base. But Adam Candy thinks this is terrible. Adam, why do you think this rule is terrible? My least favorite part of this discussion is the fact that you get to frame it before we actually talk about it. I just it, asked the question as to why you think it's terrible. What did I frame? You framed it as this being a good thing for Major League Baseball, which is, of course, is not. Um, Rob Manfred, because of the pandemic last year, instituted any number of rule changes, including seven inning double hitter, uh, double headers, and the fact that every extra inning starts with a fake runner on second base who did nothing to get there other than make the last out of the previous inning, which, by the way, is completely counterintuitive. You made an out, so go stand on second base. Uh, This rule essentially changes the game of baseball to something that it is not in the previous nine innings. It creates events like sack bunts and intentional walks that nobody wants to see. And... It shortens the game. Oh, wait, hold on. The idea was to shorten the game, right? To save wear and tear, except that when a fan graph study put it to the test, 
it actually didn't do anything to shorten game time. So I don't understand why a rule that was theoretically there to account for the pandemic is still there this year when Major League Baseball is starting to fill up stadiums again and get back to playing the same game it played for a very long time. Because it's entertaining. That's why it's a great rule. Um, I What all of our sports, except basketball, change the rules once regulation is over? I mean, hockey obviously goes to three-on-three and then a shootout. The NFL suddenly becomes fake sudden half sudden death not full sudden death but kind of sudden death like all of our sports change the rules once we get to the end of regulation i see no reason why the one sport that doesn't have a clock the one sport that might play forever would change their rules to try to stop from playing forever and i I have no problem with it and on top of that to me extra innings it's now more fun to watch because every single pitch a run could score because there's somebody standing on second. Whereas before, uh, if you can go three up, three down and keep doing that for a while. And I'm still sitting here in the 14th inning watching a game. To me, it's way more entertaining and I'm all on board for, okay, you played nine innings. You're still tied. You're going to do this 162 times this year. We can try to do something a little bit more fun. That's more entertaining to speed this up. Even though you say it doesn't speed it up. I know they did it in the minor leagues and more games ended in the 10th inning with this rule than before. So it does over the period of time, it's probably going to speed up baseball games as far as the innings played. I don't know about the time spent. I don't care about the time spent, but the innings played, it's probably going to be sped up there. So I'm all I'm all on board for it. Any everything you just said, none of that's a downside to me that would make me say, nah, let's throw it away and go back to the normal way of doing it. Boy, that was really convenient to skip over the sport that you probably spend the most time talking about with basketball and just say, Oh, well, basketball doesn't change anything. Well, because yeah, basketball is right. a sport. Basketball with a, doesn't right. change anything. They don't. And so to your point of, well, I don't want to sit around in the fourteenth inning. In two thousand nineteen, the last time we had a full season of normal baseball. of total innings played in the league took place after the 12th inning. 0.43% of of innings were played after we played three more innings of a game. So you're essentially taking a sledgehammer to a situation where you're trying to nail a picture into the wall. There's no need for it. It's completely overdone, and it leads to things that... Tyler, you and I spend so much time talking about best baseball strategy, right? The way to do things, the way not to do things. If you look at what's happened in extra innings last year, on-base percentage went up 30% over the league average because in 787 plate appearances, there were 38 intentional walks in extra innings. In 3,861 plate appearances, overall, there were 84 intentional walks issued in extra innings all of which to say is you are playing a completely different game to solve what happened in the previous nine innings also i want to extend an invitation to you if this if this is okay i want to extend an invitation to you to watch the other nine innings of the baseball game prior to extra innings because you just said a run could score on any play that actually can happen throughout the entire game well yeah believe it or not a run can score on 
any play. It can happen even more often when Rob Manfred doesn't try to solve the game of baseball by deadening the ball when it's harder than ever to actually make contact. That This is not an argument about deadening the ball, Adam. This is an argument about fun and you hating fun. It's an argument about fun. Oh, I'm sorry. It's an argument about fun. You keep bringing up intentional walks. You don't have to see the intentional walks. They just put them on base. Another great rule change. And You don't have to see them. The runner just appears there like the rest of the extra It's great. You don't have to see the bad parts. It's wonderful. It's a great rule. Never change baseball.